Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. I'm Dr. Draper. And we are joined today by a very special guest, Jack, from the YouTube channel Jack's Movie Reviews. Jack, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, guys. Just to be candid for a moment, uh, I think it's important to be genuine. This is actually kind of our second swing at this ball. Um, we, we put something together yesterday, it went well, and ran into a snag, so we're doing it again because, God forbid, we don't get an episode out. We're going to make it happen. It's a big week at the movies, and we want to talk about it. So... Today on the show, we're going to be discussing Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One and Wes Anderson's new film, Isle of Dogs. We're also going to be digging into a little bit of a, a discussion about the art of the video essay, which I'm hoping Jack can kind of lead things off for us there. And before we get to all of that, let's go over the news. The first big story this week, MoviePass reveals which movies they've boosted ticket sales for the most. I'm not really sure... What exactly this means, despite having us discussed it yesterday, but for, for the sake of the show, Andy, do you mind explaining to our listeners what's going on here? Okay, so MoviePass for the first time revealed some numbers about what their service has been doing and how it's kind of been co contributing to ticket sales. Um, so we've shown that Black Panther, they showed um, or they sold over a million tickets through their, through their service. Other big names, uh, Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, Star Wars, The Greatest Showman, um, but then there's surprising, some surprising titles like Annihilation, The Post, and Shape of Water all had over 400,000 uh, tickets sold. So what they're trying to say is that through their service, they've boosted sales for um, all these movies. Now, for something like Black Panther, they may have only accounted for about 1% of their sales. But for some of the other smaller films like Annihilation, um, they've accounted for almost 10%. Jack, I know you're not a big MoviePass uh, well, I shouldn't say fan. You're not a user of MoviePass, I should say, but uh, what do you think of this? I'm the biggest fan of the idea of it. I'm not a fan that they don't have MoviePass in my area. That's <laughs> my only thing of dislike. And I always get so jealous reading these stories about paying a couple bucks a month to see unlimited movies because I would save me quite a bit of money. But it seems like a really great thing. I think that watching movies in theaters are... It's the best way to do it. And obviously there are some snafus like paying $8 for a small popcorn or an icy or whatever, but just seeing a great movie on a big screen is unbeatable in my eyes. And if MoviePass is allowing people to, putting more people in theaters, I think that's definitely a good thing, which it definitely is happening. Like hundreds of thousands of tickets being sold for smaller movies that probably wouldn't get as much attention if not for MoviePass. I think it's interesting that MoviePass claims they're boosting tickets because they're not like they're not promoting them. They're not advertising these tickets. These are just tickets sold through their service, and they're so, they're self ascribing the word boosting here. They're giving themselves a pat on the back, and it's intriguing following hearing about what they did with Red Sparrow, which apparently for some users of MoviePass they couldn't go see Red Sparrow with it because it said they got a message saying this screening is not supported by MoviePass. Now, maybe that was just some kind of glitch or something, but I think MoviePass likes to claim... They like to pat themselves on the back for what they deem as their, their own victories, and they seem to shy away from what might be their faults. It's intriguing, like you said. MoviePass uh, is certainly a service that sounds really good, but how it works and what's going on behind the scenes, I think that's the more interesting story. Uh, Andy, well, what do you think? I think the big question is how many of these uh, tickets that were sold and how many people that went... Would they have gone even without the service? I think that's that's the thing that's harder to say is, you know, how many people are going because specifically of having Movie Pass? Because I know that they are kind of promoting some of these films through the app, like they'll send ads or promotions through the app itself. 
So that's one way that it is kind of boosting, but it's hard to say how effective it really is. Right. Would would these tickets have not been bought without MoviePass? I guess there's no real way to know for sure, right? There's there's no there's no real way to definitively say, well, MoviePass did or did not help this movie. Um, but either way, it's certainly interesting. This data's all going somewhere, right? That's part of the deal with MoviePass. <laughs> it's all ending up somewhere. Yeah, my thing with MoviePass is I want to know what their end game is. Like, what happens when they get 25% of the population or whatever paying a couple bucks a month? Like, what kind of power that'll give them over the movie industry? And if that is even going to be a good thing, if they're suddenly like, unionized almost. And I'm just wondering what the end game of that could be because could be positive or it could be negative. I know that they're planning to uh, kind of leverage their sus- subscriber base into, you know, getting cuts of uh, concessions or striking some sort of deal behind the scenes. Um, so we'll wait to see whether that whether or not that pans out because they only have about six to eight months of cash mm-hmm. left to support their business. They're really burning through it. So uh, they got to get subscribers quick. I think the end game and kind of striking deals is a perfect segue into our next story. Uh, just this last Tuesday, MoviePass signed a deal with Mark Cuban's Landmark Theaters in a deal with the major exhibition chain. Uh, they signed a pact with him and his 53 theaters, which are spread out through a few states, the ones I think of off the top of my head, Florida, Wisconsin, Texas. Uh, they are going to be working themselves into Landmark Theaters directly, and they're going to have a deal for people who go to Landmark Theaters for like $7 a month, a little cheaper than their normal pass, to go exclusively to Landmark Theaters and see all the movies they want there, which is interesting. I feel like a lot of theaters have been turning movie pass away. It's intriguing to see the Shark Tank entrepreneur embracing it. Landmark is one of those where they make the bulk of their money off of concessions because they have like basically a restaurant inside the theater. So it works well for them because they can make most of the money from selling all of that and then let as many people in as possible. So it's a win-win for them. It's those kinds of deals that are going to keep MoviePass afloat, but um, they're, I think they're definitely going to need to get some of the bigger chains mm-hmm. on board. I know that they've kind of butted heads with AMC several times. Right. And Jack, you make a good point with Landmark and Food Studio Movie Grill, another one that is big on pushing like full meals with service or with the movie. Um, they also are really big on MoviePass. So it's intriguing. Uh, more traditional theaters seem to shy away from it. Ones that are kind of doing things differently seem to embrace it. I don't know what, the, what exactly that means, but we'll certainly... Keep up with MoviePass here on this show. The other news story I wanted to get to, actually there's two more, but I should say, but this one uh, is about X-Men. X-Men Dark Phoenix has been pushed to 2019 and New Mutants has been delayed again, which is crazy because it's already been delayed like twice. I think this says a lot about how movies are made and how they can get caught up in production troubles. Uh, Jack, any immediate thoughts on this one? I guess... My immediate takeaway was just how impressive the Disney Marvel formula has been, because with very few exceptions, they haven't pushed back any movies. And I think they pushed forward the new Avengers movie coming out uh, the end of this month, which just shows how easy it is to mess up. I mean, DC's had problems. I think this um, is run by Fox, which is now owned. I'm unsure about how all that is working, but there are a lot of troubles and it just really shows it's hard to make one of these big budget things, organizing all the different actors, the direct, so many moving pieces. And I'm just so impressed by Disney's ability to do it well. Yeah. Um, we've talked about this before where the big franchises, I mean, Star Wars itself has had a lot of troubles. Uh, Rogue One had reshoots, Solo has had reshoots. Losing, you know, losing your directors. Um, same thing with the DCEU. 
Um, and I think uh, dark, moving Dark Phoenix to February, um, I think that's that's a good move. Uh, February has proved to be a very kind of profitable month, surprisingly. It used to be a really dead time, but now you've had big successes like Deadpool and, of course, Black Panther. So that's probably a good move. But as far as um, New Mutants, I mean, that was supposed to come out this month, and it's now been pushed back a year, almost a year and a half. Yeah. Plus lots of reshoots, extensive uh, rewrites. They've had to... I read a story where they had to go back and add, actually add a character during the reshoots, which I have no idea how you, how you make that work in the film, but that's w- what they had to do. That seems like a fundamental story problem. If you're adding a new character, there's something that wasn't working and they're just having to do whatever they can to try and fix it. It certainly seems like they're kind of kicking the can down the road, at least to me. Like, I don't... I don't get it. You've got a movie almost completely put together here. Yeah, and then you're adding a character and you just keep moving that release date back. You already put a trailer out. Mm-hmm. You got to make good on that at some point, you know? I feel like you should probably just find a good week where there's not a whole lot going on and maybe put it out. And that's something this article kind of digs into is when these movies are getting moved to and what they might go up against. And as far as the new Mutants date, that might be going up against, according to this, a Quentin Tarantino movie and possibly a new young adult movie based on the book Artemis Fowl. Um, so that might not even be a good weekend for it. Like you're putting it so far ahead. You're really just saying, well, we, we don't know yet. We'll deal with it later. We'll handle that when we get there. Yeah. Yeah. Like that doesn't, that doesn't seem like you have confidence in your movie. Uh, so I don't really know what this means, but it's a bummer because the trailer for new mutants is really intriguing and I kind of want to see it. And it's scary when you see studios kind of scrambling over stuff like this. Andy, uh, what do you think? Um, like, like I said, I think it's in real trouble. And I mean, like I said, a year and a half is is a pretty big, big uh, window to push it back to. And it seemed to have all, all, you know, it's got good cast. Uh, Maisie Williams is in it. Uh, Anya Taylor-Joy also in it. It's just, and it seemed like a, like you said, a different take on, on the mutant superhero genre. So yeah, I was excited to see it, but um, yeah, I think it's in real trouble. Yeah, and then one thing that uh, I do find interesting, they're actually replacing it with the Freddie Mercury biopic that was supposed to, that uh, either didn't have a release date or they're pushing that one up to replace where New Mutants was supposed to be, which is, because uh, that movie was stuck in development for years, and I'm glad that that's finally coming to fruition. Right, there was a great segment on the Howard Stern Show, of all things, you can find it on YouTube, of uh, Sacha Baron Cohen talking about because he uh, about the about the Freddie Mercury movie because he was originally atta- attached to star as Freddie Mercury um, and it didn't work out and so it's really intriguing to kind of hear him talk about for a couple minutes what it was gonna be and what he thought it was gonna be and what it's becoming and it kind of it's an interesting little sneak preview into what it is but supposedly um, that movie's actually been testing really well with audiences so that might be a hit for all I know definitely. The last story we've got this week is a, a very Andy-centric story. You can hear him chuckling in the background there. Uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey is going to return to theaters this May to mark the 50th anniversary of the Kubrick classic, which was released in 19, 1968. What's intriguing about this to me, because I love a good retro screening, is Warner Brothers is putting out 70 millimeter prints of an older version of the film that hasn't been touched up or restored in any way. Supposedly it's taken originally from the camera negative as close to the original version as possible. This is intriguing because I'm not a big 2001 fan. Andy, you are. But Jack, I want to I want to hand this one over to you. What do you think about this? I really like it. I've seen it I think just twice now, once just at home. And then my local theater was doing a just a regular digital projection, probably off the Blu-ray or something of the movie. So I've actually been able to experience 
a probably lesser, not the pinnacle, but a pretty good version uh, of the movie in theaters. And it was a wonderful experience. It really, I liked it the first time I saw it, but I really fell in love with it. Just seeing it up there on the big screen and seeing it really takes the movie to a whole other level. Yeah, I've been really into retro screenings or legacy screenings uh, recently. Um, last year, I saw Blade Runner at a Texas theater in in Oak Cliff, um, and that was just such a completely different experience seeing it on the big screen with larger than life sound. They have an excellent sound system there, and so I've been all about you know trying to see uh, full screenings of, of old films. Um, and I kind of have an interesting uh, journey with 2001. I first tried to watch it when I was like 19. Um, and I got like 30, 40 minutes into it. And I just couldn't keep going. It it, it does move. It is slow paced. And, um, you know, I just didn't have the patience for it. Uh, but I came back to it about 10 years later. Well, and it was on Netflix. And I said, okay, I'm gonna, you know, sit down and go through this properly now get a proper screening. And so I did. And I loved it. I felt like I understood it so much more, and I immediately started doing research and watching analysis videos, which we have now, uh, which really helped me understand the movie. And then it got to where I was like obsessed with it. And and Zach knows I was it, every little thing that that like represented a monolith. I was sending him <laughs> <laughs> for a while there. No, it was a good time. My experience of two thousand one isn't quite as glowing as yours. I was in film school, and and somebody. Somebody somewhere was like, oh my God, you haven't seen 2001. It's the greatest film ever. You got to check it out. And like Woody Allen or, or many other film creators, I, I did not get it. I, I bought the DVD. I watched it. I thought it was so weird and odd. And like, I, I, I was enamored with kind of the special effects because you got to remember the movie was made in 68. Like, it's incredible some of the stuff they pull off. Yeah. Um, but it's. I don't know. I couldn't get into the plot and I like it gets weird at the end and I couldn't I couldn't keep up with what was <laughs> happening and uh so I, it kind of just lost me, but I I love a good retro screening and I I especially love seeing a, a retro screening on a print. That's that's what it's all about for me cuz I yeah, when I when I got into film, I was in high school or as a, working as a projectionist in a movie theater and threading 35 millimeter pr prints through cameras and so there's something about that to me. It means a lot more. So this might be a really cool opportunity for me to see it the way it was intended by the man himself uh, in a theater. It'd be foolish to miss this, even if I'm not a big fan of the movie. And I can only hope this brings a lot of other people who maybe weren't super into it uh, the first time they saw it, kind of help them see the light too. Yeah, I really think that it just it's literally a whole other experience just seeing it uh, in its true form, everything... It looks great. It sounds great. It really is one of the most impressive movies ever made. And even if the story isn't necessarily what intrigues you, the visuals are incredible. Fans of our show remember last week when we talked about uh, Steven Spielberg, of all people, who was discussing uh, whether or not Netflix movies should be nominated for Academy Awards. If you want to check that out, head back to last week's episode, episode 15. But that's about as good a segue I can get to our first film of the <laughs> evening, uh, Ready Player One. Nowhere except the Oasis. And this is a movie, gosh... You know, I handled the plot for this yesterday. Andy, you want to take it, or you want me to do it again? Now I want you to do it again. Sorry, I didn't prepare for it. I'll take a swing. Oh, Jackie, would you? Do you want to take a stab at it? I can. All right, I can do my best. Feel free to jump in and add anything that I forget. 
Uh, especially dates and stuff. I'm horrible at remembering those. But essentially, we're in the future. I think the year is 2045, about that time. Basically, everyone, the outside world has kind of fallen apart, and everyone sort of lives in this futuristic world. It's a digital world. It's called the Oasis. And it started out as a gaming platform, but it really turned into a real-life expansion. This is where business is done. This is where school is done. Everything about your life happens in the Oasis. The creator of the Oasis before he died essentially created a game within the game to see who would take over his project once he died. And then you basically need to find three keys that are hidden throughout the insanely large world. And it basically follows a Gunther or a searcher for these keys to try and find them before a big evil corporation is able to snatch them up. So feel free to add anything to that, but that's the general gist of it without getting too spoilery. I'd say that was pretty good. I think that just about covered it. Yeah, uh, Ready Player One, uh, about our main character, Wade Watts, whose our avatar's name is Parzival, uh, essentially lives in these stacks, uh, the trailer park at the beginning of this movie, and kind of finds himself stumbling into this grand adventure to become the kind of the, the, the owner of uh, the Oasis. That's the movie. Uh, it's definitely a visual, I guess to start, a visual masterpiece, I think it's fair to say. Like, this movie has incredible visuals from start to finish, not only because of the art of the Steven Spielberg panning shot, uh, <laughs> tra tracking shot, but um, just because it looks so good. The VFX teams that worked on it really did a number, and it's not just like, oh, that explosion looked cool. A lot of things have kind of a particular art style to them, which really works well alongside older things you know. There's a lot of nostalgia in this movie. And I think all of that really comes together to create a really interesting visual package. No, I totally agree because it's definitely a special effects heavy movie. Much take your pick of them. But even within the real world, the one that we're all familiar with, it's a Spielberg movie and it looks great. You can just kind of expect, um, I forget the cinematographer who he often works with, um, but he shot the movie and you can just really tell this is a professionally done movie and a really well done movie. Um, what I was going to say is that, I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. it. It was a lot of fun. It's like, it's like a, a ride to me. Um, I was really blown away by the visuals, particularly the big uh, race that's uh, towards the beginning of the film. And, you know, we're, we've kind of entered an era where we get so many special effects heavy films, and a lot of times they're so good that it, it kind of, you become used to it and it becomes hard to be impressed. But I was really blown away by what I saw. There's so much going on, so much detail. I was reading an article about, um, you know, all the Easter eggs that are hidden in it, and it's just like, unbelievable the amounts and there are things on the walls things on the background um, but you get this incredible um, like I said at the beginning this race that is very much you feel like you're in a video game it's larger than life there's cars flying everywhere it's just it's it's wild mm -hmm. I think it's important to understand kind of the the elements of nostalgia in this movie um, before we get too far into the plot uh, the movie is based on the novel by Ernest Klein Ready Player One uh, it's very much a tribute to kind of 80s and 90s television movies and video game culture. Also a little music. Apparently the book had a little bit more emphasis on Rush than the movie does, but there's a poster in it at the end, so you can check that out. Um, and I think Spielberg was really drawn to this movie for that because it was this clever blend of like what the future might be like and 
like this tribute to the past that Spielberg is so well known for. Um, and you can see a lot of his influences um, kind of peppered throughout this movie. I think it was a really cool opportunity for Spielberg to kind of, uh, I, I don't know, like have a, give a glimpse forward at what he thinks the future will be and also like pay tribute to the things that inspired him. Definitely. And Spielberg, at least when I think of his movies, the biggest thing that I take away from him is how he really focuses on the humanity of characters. Even though Jurassic Park is about dinosaurs, E.T. is about an alien, Jaws is about... It's really not about that. It's about the humans who interact with all these incredible creatures or incredible whatever. And that kind of leads into what I found to be the biggest problem with the movie. And overall, I enjoyed it, but it just wasn't the best... I wouldn't say that it was the best story, which was a bit disappointing. The story and the characters just didn't feel all there in my eyes. Yeah, it was very much uh, by the numbers. It was a a little predictable. The characters were a little stock. Um, So that's probably the weakest part of the of the film. And I haven't read the novel. I've, you know, from what I've heard from some other people, that that the novel is actually not really all that great. Uh, Even though, like the overall story or the idea is um so but yeah that that's something else that that uh, that stuck out to me was just the, kind of the lack of character development the lack of like the supporting characters really don't do too much uh, like i said this is ve- this movie's really heavy on the visuals and re- and all about the experience of making you feel like you're in the oasis mm-hmm. i did feel a little bit conflicted as far as the plot is concerned because yeah i really enjoyed kind of the experience of the film the ride of it as it were but yeah, as far as the plot is concerned, I struggle to keep up with things because some of the characters are just a little flat and, and kind of one-sided, which is weird because they have an avatar and a real actor working with working behind the scenes. Uh, and some of them just kind of, I don't know, they, they didn't really, they weren't particularly charismatic. It, really, the, the one that I really struggled with was Ty Sheridan, the lead. Um, I, I would have felt better if they had cast somebody just with a little bit more... A little bit more oomph, a little bit more punch, you know? He's, he kind of just, he doesn't really go anywhere. And the plot had issues um, in its kind of translation from the book because they changed a lot of things, which is fine. The screenplay was written by uh, Zach Penn and Ernest Cline, the writer. So these were certainly, these were certainly changes that were intended for the film to kind of tell the story better than it would have worked in the book. But there are issues there that seem like they didn't really embrace their audience. Um, and, and that's, that's kind of where I struggled to connect with the movie. I don't know who it's made for. I couldn't tell if this was made for a young teen audience who probably would have enjoyed the plot and the visuals, but would have missed a lot of the nostalgic references, including a, a very heavy handed buckaroo bonsai reference, which I'm like, nobody would get that. That doesn't make any sense to anybody. Or if it's for older folks, for adults, who would get the references but didn't connect with the plot. And that, that was kind of misguided. Although I will say we have hindsight as our on our side. The movie's done pretty well. It was, I think it grossed $40 million in its opening weekend, which is by no means incredible. It's not the biggest movie ever, but it's solid. And I think it's on track to make back its budget. Mm. So No, I, I think it'll do well. That, that much is true. Definitely. Um, Another thing I wanted to talk about are, are kind of out of all of the tributes in the movie, there are two big ones um, that I think we should discuss. The first one is a little bit of curveball because we missed this when we talked about it earlier. 
um, is Back to the Future. The main character drives the DeLorean from Back to the Future, and that's already pretty cool. But the opening and closing credits are tribute to Back to the Future, and the composer of the film is Alan Silvestri, who did Back to the Future. And I felt like the music is heavily inspired by it. I mean, there's, there's even a couple plot devices that are, they look like they're straight out of Back to the Future. And I think that's important. Um, in the way that the kind of the theme of Back to the Future in moving backwards and forwards in time connects with this in presenting a story in the future about the past, I guess. Definitely. And what's int- and then what I thought it did really well was blending everything together. It was produced by Warner Bros. and um, whatever Spielberg's company is. Amblin. Yes. So all the references were coming from the properties owned by those two companies, but it never felt like an over done version of that. It never felt like you were missing any. It just felt like that's the world and that's all the references that it has. So I'm glad that they were able to use things in addition to the T-Rex from Jurassic Park. They were also using Heavy for Back to the Future because Spielberg produced that. So I thought they did that really well. Uh, one of the things uh, that I really liked was how the scenes transitioned from in the Oasis to the real world. So you have these uh, kind of VR setups where people have these VR suits and, and masks or helmets. And, you know, when things happen in the video game, then they happen in real life. Like, you know, if they get punched in the video game, then they react and, like, flinch in real life. And so the I guess this is more, more to do with the editing, but the scenes that, where they cut back and forth are are really impressive. There's especially somewhere, you know, multiple uh, bad guys are, you know, going down or getting zeroed out and you get to see them in real life, these whole like huge, um, like waves of people just like turn red as they, you know, they lose a life, that kind of thing. Yeah. It was blended really well together. You barely even thought about it. You just worked really well. And to bring it back around to the visual effects, um, I figured for sure they cheese it a little, especially since you don't see a whole lot of character interaction in at least the teaser trailer. I'm, I'm not sure if they released... They did release a full one. Who am I kidding? But I figured it, you'd see a few minutes of the main character, Wade Watts, uh, his his avatar, and then it cha- you know, they, they, they'd cheese it and say, well, let me switch to something that looks more like me, and you'd get, like, the actor in the Oasis, right? But no, like, they stick with the digital version of him throughout the whole movie, and it looks really good. I don't know if they mo-capped it or, or how they put it together, but it's really, it's really an incredible look. I'd be excited to see kind of a behind-the-scenes feature about it. Definitely, and what I'm glad that it didn't try and go for the ultra-real. It still stayed within the realm of animation and video game style within the Oasis, and I'm glad they didn't try to make it look as real as possible because that can just lead to problems. I think that's why, yeah, I was going to say that was a really smart decision because they could have gone that route where, oh, let's make the Oasis look like the real world, and then that definitely would have been unfilmable or you would have been you wouldn't have been able to make it as wild and kind of crazy as they did. It would have fallen right in that uncanny valley. Yeah, where it would have just been weird and people would have been off-put by it. And there is there is the other tribute I wanted to get to. I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about it. The, the other thing, there is a sequence where they do recreate something from the real world, and it was really well done. It's a tribute to uh, Spielberg's longtime friend and colleague, Stanley Kubrick, in which a handful of the characters travel into the world of Kubrick's The Shining, um, which was really fantastic. First stop at the Overlook Hotel. I, I don't even really want to kick this conversation off, so please, uh, one, of you, one of you guys take it. I guess I can start off by saying The Shining is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's what I'd call the best horror movie of all time, and it's so 
well captured. The essence of it is so well captured in Ready Player One. All of the twists and turns and story, it's all summed up really well, but it also never feels like it's just putting in there to be in there. It really helps serve a purpose. It's there because A, Spielberg loves Kubrick and he loves The Shining and he's talked about that multiple times, but also it's a big part of the story and it makes sense within the context of the film, which I really liked. Yeah, I was freaking out <laughs> during this part. I was losing <laughs> my mind because, you know, they they initiate that they're going to go into The Shining. I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, we'll, that's, we'll see something. Uh, but it's a very long extended sequence and they just nail all these points, these iconic moments and without doing too much like oh let's smile and wink at the audience it, it's none of that it like jack said it really serves a purpose um and I, I was completely blown away by that section and i'm so glad it wasn't in the novel or that because i think in the novel they go to war games and and uh, monty python so i was glad that they completely changed that because i feel it works probably works better and it was just a really nice surprise i'd be I'd be hard-pressed to find... I can't think of one, at least. If you guys know one, please let me know. I can't think of any other, like, in-film tribute to another film done as well as this was. Because it comes out of nowhere. Like, you go to a PG-13 movie about video games called Ready Player One, you don't expect to see, like, an incredible tribute to, <laughs> to The Shining, of all things. Um, and it was so well done. And And I don't know if they just used old footage and, like spliced it together through the magic of editing or if they cgi'd sets together or maybe if they built real sets i i, I don't know how they did it but that's it's one of those things like i, I want to get the blu-ray just to find out um what the secret was it, it was such a such a heartfelt tribute from one filmmaker to another um that knowing kubrick he probably would have like totally hated but <laughs> i think i think he would have been upset that somebody was aping his film for for some other reason but that's not the point the point is it's a really cool tribute to the shining and one thing that i know because uh i made a video about the shining and in doing research for it i watched a bunch of interviews on it and one of them was spielberg talking about how much he loved the movie and it was really great it's clear that this was what he was passionate about because he was born in 1946 and so he was in his 30s and 40s when a lot of the um, movies and video games and TV shows that it was referencing were released. So it may not have necessarily been his demographic. He was making what was being referenced. But with The Shining, I know that he's such a fan of that. And you, the passion that he has, that he's spoken about many times, really came through, which I really like seeing. Yeah, there were so many parts that they nailed, just uh, different, really iconic references. And it's, it's amazing how much of, of The Shining is iconic. I mean, things like the, carp, the carpet, or the Colorado Lounge, like these really little things. And they, they do a really good inside joke because we mentioned that, you know, if younger audiences, a lot of them may, probably haven't seen, seen The Shining, and they, they kind of make a direct reference to that as, you know, some of the characters are like, what is this? What are we doing in here? What's supposed to happen? Um, so I thought that was, that was really clever. And, and I hope, you know, more people, especially younger audiences, will go and see it now. Yeah, I mean, I went in at a 
regular time. It wasn't super late or anything. And there were a bunch of kids next to me. And for, let me just say, shout out to those kids. They were very well behaved, not talking, just watching the whole time, which was great and a rarity. But during The Shining, I looked over because I just wanted to see what their reaction to a movie that I'm certain they haven't seen because they were probably like seven to nine. And they just had looks of confusion on their face. And I'm over there with a big stupid grin because they're playing whatever <laughs> song that you recognize from The Shining. And I just thought it, that was, int- I, it was a, I don't want to say a risk that they included it, but I'm glad that they did include it because it's a great sequence. It's a bold move. Definitely a bold move. And really, God, I can't. I mean, it was a sta- honestly the standout of the whole film. If there's anything I walked away from this movie, it was like, God, that Shining sequence is so cool. So if you're a fan of The Shining, it's definitely worth the price of admission just for, just for that few minutes. But we covered the plot, the characters, uh, the music, the look of it, the feel of it. Any final thoughts before official recommendations? I had uh, one last thing that, uh, that I was thinking. Uh, you know, kind of the overall message of the film by the time we get to the end is that, you know, while it's great that we have movies and video games and, you know, the, the internet and this digital world we can be in, that we really still need to, you know, develop friendships and relationships in the real world and outside of kind of online communities. And I just feel like that wasn't, um, you know, kind of discussed enough. It, it just, I feel like that was a theme, but then the, it was just kind of a pass off. It just kind of, went by really quickly. It seemed like an added theme at the end because he kind of finds all of his success from doing the exact opposite. And once he does find that success, he kind of realizes that it's best to not do what he did to find. It's kind of interesting how that works out. No, I agree. In a two hour and 18 minute film, there's like 18 minutes of live action. The rest is all shot in the Oasis uh, in CGI. And I, I obviously that's not an accurate number. I'm sure I'm wrong, but there's not a whole lot of it, and it's weird to see that from Spielberg, and I say that knowing that he worked on uh, The Adventures of Tintin, which is entirely CGI, but um, it, is, it is kind of a strange message at the end that, oh, and by the way, yeah, don't spend all your time on the internet and on the computer, kids. Get outside, because the whole movie is told in, in, in that paint, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, um, But I think it's important because it wouldn't have worked otherwise. If they if they had done it all live action, it would have been odd. I think I think for the sake of the movie, for the sake of the experience, it works. Um, but it does feel a little heavy-handed at the end. I, I agree. You know what? Something I just kind of realized that I wanted to get your thoughts on. So there's one of the missions that he has to do. It basically encourages him to break the rules. There are no rules, and he does something completely different. And yet, in the movie itself, in term, at least in terms of story structure and such, it follows every storytelling rule, beat for beat, typical three-act structure. <laughs> and I, I was thinking about this last night, and it just seems, again, more of a conflicting message of what the film says versus what it does. So, Right. I, I, I think there's... I, I ran into that, too. There's, there's a couple issues in this movie that I have regards, with regards to just logical plot structure or why characters would do things the way they do. For example, just to kick it off, um, very early in the movie there is a race um, and the main character discovers in order to kind of uh, supersede the race and get to what he wants, he has to drive backwards at the start of the race. Very simple. Nobody, the Oasis, people in the Oasis have been trying to solve this puzzle for like five years. And like, I, man, we're talking about the internet Day one, like in the first (laughs) hour, somebody would have drove backwards on the finish. Like that's just, 
people that's what people do like they do they do silly things like that so the movie's got its problems like there's certainly issues in kind of uh plot structure and character motivation but like I, I don't know. I guess I guess if you can see through that and you can just enjoy it for like the fun little romp that it is, for the fun action adventure flick that it can be, for the fun nostalgia ride that's waiting for you, um, it's worth the price of admission, I think. Yeah, and and with that, uh, Andy, or I should say Jack, let's start with you. You are the guest this week, Jack. Would you recommend Ready Player One? So I really had a fun time with it. It's by no means a great movie, and we could spend the next hour and a half going through and pointing out every little plot hole that it has or every little convenience that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But if you're willing to just go in, accept the nostalgia and accept the amazing visuals, you're going to have a fun time. It's, I, I think it's as simple as that. It's Steven Spielberg constructing a really well-done action movie and... That's exactly what, if you want to see that kind of a movie, that's exactly what you're going to get. Andy, what do you think? I think this is an, an example of, of Spielberg doing what he does best, working with young heroes and taking you into an incredible world and kind of getting you hook, line, and, and sinker. Um, so I would definitely re- recommend it. I, I haven't read the novel, or, so I don't have anything to compare it to, which I think is, is good for me. I think I enjoy it more because of that. Um, so, I mean, like all cinema and I've said before, it's about going in with tempered expectations and expectations, I think are what led to me having kind of a rough ride with this movie. I expected some kind of old school Spielberg, which to be fair, there's some good old fashioned Spielberg, Spielberg schmaltz at the end of this movie. So that's there. Um, I'd read a good chunk of the book. I, I expected some things that didn't quite go my way, but to say it's a bad movie, I, I don't know if I could do that. I had a lot of fun watching it. I've had a lot of fun talking about it, and I'm looking forward to watching it again at some point. So for what it's worth, I'd say it's absolutely worth the price of admission. It's definitely worth shelling out a couple bucks and seeing it if you can. If you want a great companion piece to Ready Player One that really talks about um, the evolution of Spielberg's career as someone who had so much success in the 1970s when he was... 30 with Jaws. Um, watch the HBO documentary Spielberg. It goes through his entire career and his family life and essentially how one impacts the other. And basically a big message of it is how you had this this enormous shift in tone following Schindler's List. It had basically how his movies really changed their focus following that. And it's interesting with Ready Player One because in a lot of ways it totally follows the pre- uh, Schindler's List thing. It's got the uh, E.T. vibe. It has the, a lot, like Jurassic Park vibe to an extent. The, the fun Spielberg vibe that we all know, but it also has a much more mature tone in a lot of ways that you find in a lot of his post-Schindler's List. So definitely I found those to go nicely together. I think it's funny you recommend uh, a little bit of additional material to kind of grow your uh, knowledge of film and filmmaking, because that leads perfectly into our next segment, uh, The Death of Cinema. For this week, I think we're going to do it a little differently. Uh, Jack, you've offered to kind of head this one up. Um Take it away. Shoot. Uh, what, what, what do I need to say? All right. So before I was invited onto the show, they asked me to do a bit of research on, or come up with something on video essays and are they the death of cinema? There's recently been a bit of backlash against video essays saying that they may not be good, but I feel like I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. Let's just begin with a super simple definition of what a video essay is. 
In its simplest form, it's an essay accompanied with matching visuals to enhance the experience. That's enhance it to make it more interesting, but also enhance it to give you more experience, more information can be packed into an essay. So they can be about anything, like just like an essay can, a video essay can work really well in any field, but kind of naturally, they work really well with film and television, really any visual medium, but we're going to be focusing on film. And that's because if you read any good film essay, you're probably going, it, it might at one point describe a scene. And instead, and instead of spending three sentences describing that scene, you can just show the scene and then really have your voice focus on the important part while the visuals can speak for themselves. Film is a visual medium, so it makes sense to discuss it in a visual way. These are pretty prevalent on YouTube. I'm sure you've heard of a lot of the bigger creators like Every Frame of Painting, Nerd Writer, Lessons from the Screenplay, Now You See It, uh, Your Movie Sucks, and there are arguably channels that kind of fit into the uh, category like the Film Theories channel or Cinema Sins. So it's a super popular medium. Millions of people are subscribed across it. And it essentially takes an aspects of film, take, you take an aspect of film, you talk about it, explain it, you show footage from it, um, you edit it in an interesting way, and you help to inform. And there are really two predominant focuses. One is on film form, like writing, editing, and the other is more on the interpretive. This is how I interpret this movie. This is its main message. And it really opens up an interesting discussion from there. Right. The opportunity to present either an objective view of a film to say this this scene is lit well or this director or this this scene is edited well versus a subjective view, which is this on screen means this or when the director said this, what he meant was that. And that is subjective because it is interpretive. It's your own opinion or it's the film essay writer's opinion, really. And the problem here, I guess the argument is a lot of video essays can have a production value that makes them look and sound and feel so good, people on the internet might misconstrue them as legitimate fact when they may be more opinion or subjective than anything else. Um, Andy, what do you think about this so far? Are you keeping up with us? <laughs> yeah, trying to. Uh, so I'm a huge fan of, of video essays. I forget exactly when I started watching. Um, Jack, I've been watching your channel for, for over a year. Um, but, you know, I've always, I'm always looking for uh, just to better understand a film, especially something that's difficult, maybe things like Blade Runner, 2001, No Country for Old Men, uh, these kinds of more more challenging films. But there's definitely... Um, you know, I've seen video essays that are really repetitive or just the same thing that 10 other people have talked about or that, or like you said, theories that are maybe valid or maybe way out in left field and aren't really discussing like the material or the subject in the film. Mm -hmm. And then I guess you could argue the trouble is there's no necessary, there's no proof for it. You can easily edit your way around something to make an unsubstantiated claim and it could easily mislead a large percentage of the audience who ends up watching it. And I think a really good example of this, and let me just first begin by saying, I'm in no way trying to attack anyone at all. I think the video essay medium is very good, but there are problems more so with some individual creations. And in a lot of ways, the people who interpret, the audience who watches the video essay and interprets this. And the, I guess, go-to example that I've seen has to do with um, 
Everframe Painting put out a really good video on F for Fake and how to structure a story in general, but he focused on how to structure a video essay. And in it, a lot, what a lot of people took away from it was that the movie F for Fake by Orson Welles, that he made the first essay film, and that's the start of it. And I've seen that opinion repeated a bunch. But in reality, essay films were something that happened well before them, but Orson Welles just made one of the best ever. And so just like small things like that, it's easy to spread information around because of how prevalent these video essays are. What's interesting about this to me is people who are so quick to be critical of video essays in particular, because what I hear when we talk about this is turns out people make things on the internet and sometimes it's not real and you can't believe everything you see on the internet. And that sounds like a layup. That sounds like something. Yeah. That sounds like something anybody would know. You'd wish. Um, and it's why, yeah, Jack, you you, you create these. Why do you think people like to point directly at video essays of all things? I mean, why, why are video essays catching flack for this? You know, I think it really just comes down to people blaming the medium itself. When, it's much easier to point your fingers at a big group of that one thing that is that has potential to be troubled rather than really sifting through and pointing out the individual problems themselves. I have a question. Uh, Jack, what do you look for when you're when you're doing research for a film or you're looking at other uh, channels, video essays? What do you look for and what do you kind of avoid? Honestly, I just try and find films that ask a question or films that are open to interpretation. Hopefully I'm able to provide enough information and get my thoughts out there and provide enough proof to put forward a new thought and put out a new angle on the film. It's pretty easy to talk about insert generic movie X that has been covered 12 different times and pretty much like talking about Wes Anderson and color, for example, or Wes Anderson and center framing when that's already been discussed quite a bit when at least in my eyes, his movies offer a lot more than just being pleasant to look at. So that's usually the angle that I try and come. What's unique and what can be said that can inform. And I think it's easy for people, creators, I should say, some of them who are maybe struggling to get a channel off the ground or hoping to kind of get a little bit more exposure to maybe draw themselves towards ideas that are a bit more radical, things that other people haven't said or maybe have said and build on that to kind of tell a little bit of a fib in order to get some views and, you know, rile some feathers. And that might be representative of a larger genre, which is unfortunate. Um, I worry, like you said yesterday, to steal exactly your quote, that the minority seems to be maybe a little louder than the majority here. What, what do you think about that? Well, you see that a lot with everything. And undeniably, there are going to be, I guess formulas for things. A lot of video essays are based off of the every frame of painting stuff, myself included. Um, the talk about a film in a seven to 10 minute style, go in with specific examples and with some nice upbeat background music. I'm totally, that's basically what I do, although arguably different content focuses uh, with his style in mind. But anyway, every medium has a mold. And you see this a lot with like Joseph Campbell, I'm a huge fan of all of his work and how much he's inspired with his um, Hero with a Thousand Faces and all of that. It, video essays, much like films and stories and everything, has a pretty apparent mold. And 
I think that it's easy to get caught up in that, which can be a bit disappointing. I think one thing that I've started actively avoiding is a, a kind of a subgenre that I call cinema hate. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to name any channel specifically, but there's some channels out there that they seem to exist to only complain about of a movie. They'll just go over what, here are all the plot holes, here's what should have been written, here's what the characters should have done. You know, just lots of really negative views. And it seems like every video is like that. And I, I watched some of those initially because they're kind of entertaining that you can get a lot of laughs out of that. But after a while, I was I started to question. I was like, all these channels seem to just kind of hate movies. Why are they continuing to do these these uh, videos? So what what do you kind of think about that? These channels that kind of focus on, I guess, are just kind of overtly negative. I think it really depends on. I like to focus on the positives of movies, and I've made a couple of videos that are kind of ne- like kind of negative. I focused on Alien Covenant and what I found to be one of the biggest problems with that, and also The Great Gatsby and why it works so well as a book and not so well as a movie. But I think the biggest thing for me is, can you tell if a video essayist or anyone is coming from it at a positive angle or a negative angle? If you're trying to teach someone through a bad example, then that can be a really powerful tool. And that's something that I try to do whenever I talk about it moving negatively. But at least for me, I always try and be positive in life. Always look on the bright side of anything. And um, I get the most enjoyment out of talking about what movies do right. And I guess that can't be said for everyone, which teach their own, I guess. Well, and if you're, if you're, like you said, with Alien Covenant, if you're looking to kind of show why something doesn't work, that's different from just like, let's just sit and bash this movie for the next half hour or whatever, because we'll get likes and people will laugh and we'll get more subscribers. For me, I'm, I come at it from a different angle and it's only because, uh, and I don't mean to, I'm not trying to scoreboard anybody here. Um, it's only because of my time at school studying film. Um, when I started studying film theory, the way they, my, my instructor introduced it to a classroom full of people is we watched a scene, I think from the Virgin suicides and she said, what did you see in the scene? What does it mean? You know? And, and, and it started off as, Oh, you know, there was floral wallpaper. That's indicative of women and female empowerment. And it, and it started to, to trickle down into like, Oh, that painting on the wall, that sailboat was red because it's indicating, I don't know. And it was absurd. And I'm sitting here listening to this conversation like, what are you all talking about? Like, none of that means that. But that difference of opinion stirs conversation. And it gets people talking about what it might mean in a deeper capacity than you would get simply by watching it yourself. So for movies I love and for movies I struggle to understand, like Ready Player One, I enjoy watching video essays, whether I agree with them or not, simply because it asks questions and it forces me to consider it on a deeper level. So for me, I dig them usually regardless. Um, but at the same time, I can understand why somebody might see that and just take it away as, well, that movie must be bad because these people said so. And that's no good. I, I just think the best part about YouTube and its comment section, and it's gotten pretty good with like replies and stuff. The best thing about YouTube is being able to create a conversation. My favorite comments are the ones that are like 12 paragraphs long talking about exactly why they disagree with all of my points because it creates a discussion. And I've had, I had someone um, basically write a paper on inherent vice that, and that cause I made a video about inherent vice and they kind of made a response to that. So I really appreciate the conversation. That's really, 
in part why I got into making video essays, just looking for people who love movies as much as I do and love to have conversations about film. And I think it's great to see um, video essays continue that conversation. Yeah, what, one of the things that I love is is learning uh, about the film, either by about how it was made or just understanding something that might be a little tough. I mentioned earlier when we were talking about 2001 that after I saw it the second time and liked it, I started looking up um, tons of video essays. Uh, Rob Iger, I don't know if you've watched any of his stuff, but he he has a ton on 2001. And some of his theories are a little bit more out there than others, but there's so much that I learned about the film, about the making of the film, about the themes and meanings and the you know, huge amount of interpretations of that. And that's, that's what I really like. And especially, you know, there's really challenging films out there. And then there's things that, you know, maybe I haven't seen. And this is what's different about that you can do with the video essay. There's, there might be a, a movie I'm curious about that I haven't seen. And then I'll, I'll watch an analysis of it. And then I'll go see it afterwards a lot of times. And if I hadn't watched that, that essay, I may not have checked out the film. Definitely. If you really want a great um, video essay series on the making of 2001 A Space Odyssey, my buddy Cinema Tyler has a seven-part series. The videos are like 15, 25, sometimes 33 minutes long. And they really go in-depth about the techniques and the just how much effort and how much care Kubrick put into every aspect about 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's just, like I think I said, a seven-part series. It really is fantastic. And if anyone wants to see a great... Um, a great look into 2001. I, that's always my go-to recommendation. Well, as far as our Death of Cinema segment is concerned, I think that just about wraps everything up pretty well. I think I think we got somewhere with that. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we convinced some of the naysayers to be less naysaying and then some of the people who have watched a lot to maybe take it with a grain of salt. Um, but I don't know. And ho- hopefully this starts a conversation that gets finished somewhere as well. Hopefully, yeah. Uh, if you want to get involved with this, if you want to let us know what you think, email us at mail at offscriptreview.com. Uh, offscriptfilmreview.com. Offscriptfilmreview.com. And if you want to find out more about Jack, Jack, where can people check you out? All right, so the best way is on YouTube. You can It's youtube.com slash Jack's Movie Reviews, but you can just search Jack's Movie Reviews in the search bar, and I'm the first one that comes up. I produce a weekly video essay series talking about what makes different films so great. If you end up checking me out, I hope you enjoy. Um, I really enjoy making those videos. And we really enjoyed having you on the show, Jack. We are going to talk about Isle of Dogs, which unfortunately, and I want to talk about this, uh, did not come to your town. No. And it's upsetting. Yes, Uh, very (laughs) upsetting. We'll discuss that. Yeah, but to avoid any spoilers, uh, we should let you go. But thank you for joining us on the show. It has been a pleasure. Please come back and and be on with us again soon. Absolutely. It's been a whole lot of fun two days in a row. Um, (laughs) It's really has been a blast talking about movies, talking about everything. Um, And I'm looking forward to doing it again. Definitely. Well, thanks so much. We'll see you. Thank you for having me. Bye, guys. All right, Andy. We've got one more film to get to. Isle of Dogs. I know you covered it yesterday. I don't mind taking the plot today if you're cool with it, or, or you if you queued something up, I, I can. Where do you land on it? Uh, you can take the plot, but before we get to that, I kind of want to talk about the struggle that it was to see Isle of Dogs. Let's can okay. we? Yeah, please. Let's get this out of the way. Oh, so Jack himself, he said he couldn't. It didn't come to his town, so he couldn't see it. I attempted to watch it last week and drove forty minutes out of my way only f- to realize. I bought a ticket for the wrong day and it wasn't playing. <laughs> and 
um, so finally, it did come out this week, but I had to go, I had to drive about a half hour, go to a very expensive part of town, pay, pay $14 for a matinee, dodge the valet guy who was trying to get me to pay $9 for, to park my car to finally see the movie. And it was great, and I was glad I finally got around to it, but it was a real struggle, and it's, it's a real advocate for things like Netflix, which can get, be seen by anyone regardless of location. What's interesting about this, to me, with Isle of Dogs, is I've seen in a couple places that it came out last Tuesday. I've seen other places, like IMDb, claim that it doesn't come out till the 13th. So it's not out yet. So I don't know if it's getting a wide release on the 13th or not, but either way, I can't figure it out. But I went and saw the movie anyway, and I saw it in Houston, which is funny, like I discovered last time we recorded this. Uh, that's where Wes Anderson is from. He's from Houston, Texas, and I still could barely find a place to see it. I had two theaters. Both of them I showed up to were practically sold out, so I ended up having to find another screening somewhere else. It's absurd the hoops I had to jump through the hoops I had to jump through to see this movie. And the way I see it, if it's only playing at two theaters and both of them are sold out, why is it only playing at two theaters? Why isn't it getting a wide release? And maybe it is. Maybe we're just ahead of the curve on this, but either way, like there's got to be a better way to see a Wes Anderson movie than having to jump through flaming hoops to make it happen. Yeah, like I said having to dodge the valet attendant in the p- parking garage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's a bummer Jack couldn't stick around and talk about it. I know he really wanted to see it. And I'm sure it'll come to his town at some point. I hope so. Uh, either way, if he puts out an essay about it, that'd be awesome. That'd be a great way to find out what he thinks, but we'll see. Either way, we should talk about our last movie of the evening, Isle of Dogs. We get the idea. You're looking for your lost dog spots. Does anybody know it? No. no. I've lost all of my Isle of Dogs. Oh man, this plot. <laughs> it's not too complex. It's just a little uh it's a little foreign, I should say. Isle of Dogs is a film set in the Japanese archipelago. It's a movie that follows a young boy's odyssey in search of his dog. Specifically, it's about Atari Watanabe, I think is no, Atari Kobayashi is his last name, excuse me. Uh, who has lost his dog uh, spots. On an isle, on an island made out of trash. This island was produced uh, essentially for Japan in the future to dump all of their trash onto. And the mayor, Mayor Kobayashi, who hates dogs as the rest of his family has done throughout history, decides that for the good of the land, dogs will be exiled to Trash Island, including his ward, Atari's dog, Spots. Spots gets sent over with all the other dogs. Atari's pretty upset about it, so he steals a plane and flies over, and along with the help of a few canine friends, voiced by a who's who of a cast, uh, sets out to find his missing dog. That's pretty much the setup for the movie. Andy, any initial thoughts on Isle of Dogs? Yeah, so I really liked it. It's a really charming story. It's really engaging and heartwarming, but it also has very kind of serious undertones. Uh, We were discussing yesterday that... I took, there's a lot of ways to read the film, and one of the readings I took is that it's actually very political, and uh, to me, I th- I thought it was kind of about how uh, um, fear and propaganda can be used to deceive a democratic population. Uh, so that's a, a very serious reading of it, but there's also just the surface level, a boy looking uh, for his dog. Um, in addition to that, though, the, the animation is incredible. It's so detailed, and you know, we we reviewed 
early man a couple of weeks ago which was more more traditional stop motion and this is kind of the exact opposite and it's a completely different style highly detailed um you, you know you can't see the th- the seams i was i heard in an interview that he actually he animated every other frame instead of every frame so you get kind of this texture where it, it it's um not rough but just th- the motion looks a certain way because it's every other frame instead of every frame right and it's not just limited to the way they did the stop motion but there's so much technique here i think in a movie like kubo and the two strings you can see a lot of like new exciting uh kind of techniques and stop motion, the way they use green screen and kind of blow some things up and use forced perspective to make things look intriguing already in a medium that is interesting and eye-catching, that is stop motion, of course. But this movie does that to the nines. I felt like every scene, there's something interesting or cool happening that I haven't seen in stop motion before. There's always something on screen going on that I thought, wow, that's really slick. That's really interesting, whether that be smoke that instead of using CGI, they use this kind of like fabric and thread to get this kind of smoke effect or a fight which breaks out. And rather than seeing stop motion characters slug it out, you get this wacky, cartoony kind of cloud of smoke where limbs are popping out. There's always something really cool happening on screen, which accompanies this intriguing story about this boy looking for his dog. And also, and I forgot to mention this in the plot, uh, his quest, which inspires a group of dog lovers to expose this government conspiracy involving dog flu and why these dogs are exiled to Trash Island. It's really engaging. And yeah, there's kind of an adult plot there, like you said, with political overtones, but also this kind of childish plot for this boy to find his dog which works perfectly in a pg-13 film and is not something i guess i guess i'd expect it from wes anderson but in how does this i guess stack up to his previous films where, where do you think this one lands for you how is it similar and how is it different um well like most directors you know ideally they get better over time and you know i really like the grand budapest hotel um but i think he had kind of gotten into not a rut but He's almost turned into a caricature of himself. Um, like his, he's definitely an auteur, and a lot of his films kind of look the same, sound the same, have a lot of similarities. And so, what I liked about this is it felt very different. Like the, it had some, you know, Wes Anderson hallmarks, but it wasn't just another something that we've seen before. I thought it was just a very unique story and a very unique telling. I think the the writing is still very much like a Wes Anderson movie, but everything else is is really different, I thought. I agree. It's got that signature like Wes Anderson look to it and that everything is very symmetrical. It's got that signature Wes Anderson kind of dark, twisted sense of humor, whereas in other movies, somebody would just immediately throw out an expletive somewhere or like in Life Aquatic that we talked about last week, they would be walking around with handguns for some reason in these bright, goofy tracksuit outfits. This movie's got that, but in a lighter way. Violent images, but aren't quite as violent as you would expect in one of those movies. And it also had the signature Wes Anderson casting. The cast for this movie is outstanding. Well, I'll, I'll start with the, the dark humor. Um, I mean, there's some really, there's a lot of violence, but it's not graphic. It's not gory. But, you know, for instance, at the towards the beginning of the film, the dogs get into a big scrap with another pack of dogs. And um, one of the dogs loses an ear and it gets kind of spat out. And it's like, oh, that's kind of graphic. And there, there's lots of that kind of things that are, 
really pretty violent, but they're they're kind of displayed in a softer way. You know, there's another point where they find um, a dog that was locked in a cage, which they couldn't find the key to. And so it's just a dog skeleton, <laughs> you know? So <laughs> yeah. it's like, and it's these things, and they make you chuckle, but they're they're really kind kind of dark. And it's in, I think this is one of the film's strengths that it'll play to a, a very wide audience because a lot of that stuff will just kind of go over the kids' heads, but the, you know, the adults will chuckle and be like, oh man, that's, that's really pretty serious. A bit of clever filmmaking I wanted to highlight at the beginning of the movie, because it's very tongue-in-cheek, as most Wes Anderson films are. At the beginning of the movie, there's, there's like an ex, an ex, ex exclamatory explanation if that makes any sense uh where it explains on a black screen with text very clearly that most of the characters in the film will be speaking in their native tongue and being that this is set in japan they'll be speaking japanese even though this is for english audiences dogs of course will be translated from barking to english for the rest of us uh but characters will be speaking japanese and what's clever about this is how uh characters are written into the film to translate for us. So rather than just cheating it and using subtitles, if Mayor Kobayashi is broadcasting a, a speech to the world, what we hear is this translator, played by Francis McDormand, translating his speech into English. So we still get it in English, but we get it through another character in the world of the film. It's really immersive in that way. It kind of keeps you rooted in what's happening. Yeah, and there's lots of scenes where where things aren't translated and you know, people are speaking Japanese and you just kind of have to figure out what they're saying or what they mean based on, you know, are they angry, are they sad? Kind of the the acting or the voice acting kind of takes over and you get enough from the context of the conversation that that you're not lost. And but like you said, it's very immersive that way. And <laughs> And again, I say immersive, and it, it's it's hard for me to kind of explain that well on a podcast because I think part of Wes Anderson films is is like they're not that immersive, right? The camera's always stationary. You're you're looking at a very symmetrical shot, um, but somehow, like despite being stop motion and being about animals, like this movie this movie grabbed me in the first five minutes and never really let go throughout the runtime, which wasn't too long it was 101 i felt like that was a fine a fine span to kind of tell the story in i know some people uh critics of the movie which there aren't many most most i think favored it said maybe it ran a little too long i i disagreed i felt like it was maybe too short there were parts where it it felt long even though it's not you know it's an, about an hour and 40 minutes which is that's a, a little bit on the shorter side uh but there were parts in the middle they didn't drag but it just it did start to feel a little bit long to me but but I enjoyed it so much, I, like, I wouldn't go back and cut anything. No, I, and I certainly didn't end up checking my watch during the movie. I was, I was glued to my seat. So, before we get to official recommendations, any final thoughts on Isle of Dogs? Um, if I have any criticisms, it would probably be that I feel like a lot of the female characters are really sidelined. Like, uh, Scarlett Johansson is in it, but she's kind of just plays a love interest. And I know that, that they're just dogs, but, like, you know, you have a pack of five male actors five male dogs and like i said said the uh the female cast is kind of sidelined a little bit so i would have liked to see them a little bit more front and center right greta gerwig plays a character who is um well looking to expose the government conspiracy but arguably she's doing it one because she loves dogs and two because she's got a crush on the main character i mean that's very that's very clear and francis mcdormand plays the translator for mayor kobayashi but yeah, she's I mean, she's literally sidelined. She's on the side of the screen when the speech <laughs> is happening. Um, 
and that's kind of a bummer. Yeah, all of the dogs are, well, except for uh, Scarlett Johansson's character, are played by males. Uh, the mayor is male. The kid is male. Um, and it's odd. It seems strange for, for a director who, who at this point has clearly made himself an auteur to be kind of staying in that rut. I would expect him to kind of branch out and do things a little different, but... I don't know. Maybe he just wanted to, didn't want to try to tackle this that mo- this movie. Maybe he's going for something else. Especially with it being set in the future, you know. Ideally, things things get more uh, gender equal and and whatnot. So, like I said, that would be my, probably my only criticism. Uh, real quick, uh, I want to comment on Greta Gerwig's character, who uh, is Tracy. Uh, you know, she's uh, an American exchange student who's kind of getting involved politically and. Maybe I'm reaching a little bit here, but I kind of felt like that represented like American like meddling in the elections of other countries or the politics of other countries, American foreign policy. But maybe that's maybe that's my very serious interpretation of it. No, I hadn't read that far into it. Like we talked about yesterday, there was a lot of the political stuff that you noticed that I had completely missed. I was like, oh, I just like this cool story about the dogs and the the boy, but... (laughs) You might be right. You might be wrong. Based on our previous conversation, I think it's fair to kind of approach that comment with your own opinion and see what you think. I don't know if there's if that's a thing, but honestly, considering what I believe to be the care that Wes Anderson puts into his films, I wouldn't put it past him. There's certainly some political motivation behind what he's saying. I'm not sure exactly what that is, but I'd be remiss if I didn't admit it's, admit it's there. Andy, would you recommend Isle of Dogs? Absolutely. I would as well. Um, absolutely worth the price of admission. It's apples and oranges to Ready Player One, but if, it is, if it's in your town and you can catch a screening, um, totally worth the price of admission. I know we are. We just did recommendations, but the last thing <laughs> I just remembered was uh, the soundtrack is really endearing. A, a lot of it is just uh, drums. It's big taiko drums that kind of uh, get heavier and kind of thinner depending on what's happening uh, you know they ramp up when the action is and then we get a couple of other i mean maybe only two or two or three other songs but they work really well right despite the fact that it's mostly taiko drums it actually injects a lot of pace into the movie it keeps scenes going and the few songs you get that aren't taiko yeah fit surprisingly well normally in a west anderson flick i expect a lot of like hipster indie folk kind of stuff and this has one or two of those, but for the most part, it's very traditional. And it keep again, it keeps you rooted in the world of the film. It didn't pull me out too much, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, same here. The, the, there's, a, I was going to say, there's a repetitive use of a Lieutenant Key J, which is a Prokofiev uh, piece um, that works really well. Lieutenant Key J, is that how you say that? Yeah. Is that is that Japanese? I, you know, actually, I don't know. It's, I think it's from an opera. Mm. or something that but it's it's prokofiev that's all i know huh the more you know well i think that just about wraps our show uh at least our second take on it. <laughs> so uh for next week we should talk about what we're gonna see we're going to see a quiet place and did we settle on what the other thing was i know we've been going back and <laughs> forth on it we're gonna look at, at something uh that's on streaming either amazon or netflix and uh, so we'll kind of announce that on on the next show. You'll you'll see, but it'll be something that you can check out at your at your leisure. Yeah, we got a couple ideas, probably for things that mm. were either nominated for Oscars this year or were maybe snubbed and should have been nominated. I know one we were discussing. I was really interested in seeing, and I don't want to give it away in case it doesn't happen. But um, look forward to it. But definitely a quiet place. The new John Krasinski film. We'll see his his debut. I guess we should see how well he does horror and whether or not he relies entirely on jump scares to make a horror movie 
I guess we'll find out. But with that being said, for episode 16, well, wait, 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 hold on. I want to tell people how to find Jack again. That's important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you enjoyed listening to Jack, check him out at Jack's Movie Reviews on YouTube. It is a fantastic channel. It is absolutely worth a sub. And make sure you hit the notification box as well just to know when he's got a new thing out. You should also check him out on Twitter at Jack Movie Review. No S's in there, just Jack Movie Review. Um, worth your time. He tweets new things. He says what he's going to be doing next. He even offers sneak peeks of what's to come. So check him out if you're on the Twitter. And if you want to know what we're up to, you can find us at offscript, offscriptfilmreview.com. Email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. From Offscript, the home of bold cinema, this has been episode 16. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.